This summer, our family had the opportunity to uh, vacation in Italy and Greece. Um, both those countries are beautiful. Uh, they're steeped in history that goes back millennia, um, many millennia before our country was even a thought. Uh, one of the highlights for me was the opportunity to visit biblical sites, to be able to walk in places like Corinth and Athens, uh, places where the Apostle Paul himself had walked and preached and ministered. And because there was so much to see, I, I, I uh, would hire a private guide uh, to guide us through the archaeological sites. And I'd like you to meet one of those guides. This is Faye. Faye is a Greek grandmother. She was our guide in Athens. She was energetic. She was passionate about her culture. But she was also passionate about her faith. And as we were emailing before the trip, uh, arranging the guide services and things like that, she found out that our family were Christians. She found out that I was a pastor. And she immediately began to pour out her heart to me. You see, Faye had had a difficult life. Uh, She had sinned, and she had been deeply sinned against. The second day we were in Athens, I headed to the National Archaeological Museum alone. My family took a break back at the apartment, met Faye there, and after our tour, she came to the lobby of the museum and grabbed a bench and sat down and wanted to talk. And as we began to talk, the Spirit guided our conversation into spiritual things. See, Faye lived a life of intense guilt. A life that was filled with a sense of deep unworthiness. She was Greek Orthodox all her life. Uh, very, um, uh, very deeply religious. And she had expressed to us over lunch that her great desire is that she would be a Christian here, meaning her heart and and not a Christian here, talking about her dissatisfaction with the organized church. See, the the Greek Orthodox faith, there's a lot of works-based religion in that faith, and they could never be good enough to relieve her guilt. She, She was never good enough to find God's favor. And Faye looked at me with these glistening but pain-filled eyes and asked me two questions on that bench. She said, Pastor Gene, Jesus died so long ago. How could he forever forgive all the sins that I commit today? And then she said, what value do I have that he would ever bother to come back for me. For the next 20 or 30 minutes on that bench, I got to share with Faye the glories of the gospel of grace. Truths that she had never heard before. She had never understood that the gospel is one of grace, that that we can find full forgiveness for our sins in Jesus Christ. She had never heard it before. As we were, I was returning home on the airplane somewhere over the Atlantic, about 30,000 feet or so, I was finishing a journal that I had of the trip, and I was recounting these, uh, these memories and these thoughts. I was glad the lights were turned down in the plane because the tears were just streaming down my cheeks as I thought about Faye. And I wondered how many of us 
who sit in these chairs week in and week out have either never understood the gospel or like Thay, have been taught an incomplete gospel or a false gospel. And as I wrestled with God through these things, I told God, the next time I stand in the pulpit, I'm going to preach nothing but the gospel. And here we are a few weeks later. Well, the gospel can be found on every page of Scripture, literally. So where do you start? Well, I'm going to go back to the beginning, to the first verse I ever preached on. And that's Ephesians 1 and verse 7. I'll fill in the pronouns. It's a little bit difficult to follow Paul sometimes. Uh, this particular passage from verse 3 through 14 that I had Rich read is actually one long run-on sentence in the Greek. And to understand the context, Paul's writing to the church in Ephesus. Or a circular letter, depending on your view of that. But he's writing to God's people. Verse 1, it says, to the saints who are in Ephesus, to those who are saved, to those who are Christians, to those who have understood the gospel. He said, I want to both praise God the Father for all the glories of the gospel, and I want you as, be- as believers to understand all of the benefits of that gospel. And that's what's in verse 3 through 14. But as we come to verse 7, I think what we find here is the absolute core the center of the gospel. It says, In Jesus Christ, we have redemption through Christ's blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses or sins, according to the riches of the grace of God the Father. And the beginning of verse 8, which the Father lavished on his people. Jesus Christ came into the world. Mark's gospel opens with Christ's entrance to his earthly ministry. And he said, Jesus says this when he began his ministry on earth. He said, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Well, we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus arrive in the first place? Paul again helps us out in Timothy. And he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save Sinners. Who are sinners? Paul helps us again. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The verse here for sin, the verse here for trespass in verse 7 means to miss the mark. It means to not measure up to God's standards of holiness and righteousness. It means... That all people in all ages have sinned. They've violated God's commandments. We have all sinned. I'm not looking at anybody here in in front of me who's not a sinner. You're not looking at anybody who's not a sinner. And a right understanding of the gospel must begin with an understanding that we have a sin problem. Because without understanding there's a problem... There's no reason for a gospel. See, a gospel literally means good news. That's what the word means. Well, to receive good news, sometimes there has to be a problem. Or what would be good about the news? And Jesus says that that good news is something that we must believe. Well, what is it that we must believe? 
There are three words in verse 7 that give us the core of gospel belief. The first word is redemption. The gospel begins with a problem, and redemption is what's needed to fix that problem. Now, when we hear the word redeem, our thoughts might go towards coupons or, or, or Holiday Inn Express points, some kind of reward that we can either earn or accumulate. And when we turn in that reward, we get something out of it. We get the free hotel room. We get the discount at the, the uh, restaurant, whatever it might be. But it's something that we've acquired or earned that we can then redeem or turn in for something else. Well, biblical redemption is something far different. See, the Roman Empire, at the time when these verses were written, ran on slave power. Slaves fueled the economic machine of the empire. And in the first century, it's estimated that there were at least six million slaves in the Roman Empire. One could become a slave by conquest if the Rome conquered a new territory and those that were captured could be brought into slavery. That's how you often had very, what I'll call high-end slaves, those who were almost royalty, those who were very educated and refined, and they'd be brought into the Roman homes to be educators to the children, to be, to be business managers, yet they were still slaves. You could be sold into slavery or sell yourself into slavery over an unpaid debt. Or, as was all too common, you could just simply be born to parents who were slaves. And by default, you yourself became a slave. Well, in cities throughout the empire, it was common in the marketplaces for there to be a buying and a selling of slaves. All the people that uh, were reading Paul's letter would have understood that. They would have been, it would have been common to go down for the produce and for the household goods and see the slaves being sold off in the marketplace. See, humanity's problem is not only that we're sinners. Humanity's problem is by nature we're slaves. By birth and by choice, all human beings have a sinful nature. And the sinful nature has enslaved us. Jesus says this in John 10, John 8. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Well, there are a number of words used in the New Testament to help us understand this idea of redemption. What does redemption mean? The first one comes from this ancient Roman marketplace. Here you have ancient Corinth. This is the first century road that comes into the original city. And on either sides are the Roman ruins of what's called the Agora. The Agora is the marketplace. And every ancient city that we visited in our time over there had a Roman or a Greek agora. It was where all the commerce of the community happened. And along this very road are where the slaves would have been bought and sold. Paul himself would have walked on those paving stones. The first word, then, that the New Testament uses comes from this word agora. It's called, it's, it's agorizo. And it means to buy from a marketplace. And what that word emphasizes is the price paid for the item. So when a slave was purchased, there had to be a price paid. Paul uses the same word to talk about our redemption. 
when he wrote to that same church in Corinth. He says, you're not your own believers, saints. You were bought with a price. And that's that word, emphasizing the price that has to be paid to redeem a slave from the marketplace. Well, the second word puts, the, puts an X in front of agorizo and makes it X agorizo. And that means to buy out of the marketplace. And the emphasis there is that once a slave has been purchased out of the marketplace, they're never to return. This is a final purchase. The slave is not worried that the owner will turn around and sell him right back in again. Paul uses the same word in Galatians of our redemption that's characterized in the gospel. He says in Galatians 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us. He purchased us out of the slave market where we found ourselves And the emphasis is is that he'll never send us back again. Never. The third word is the one used here in Romans 1, or excuse me, Ephesians 1, 7, where it says, in him we have redemption. And that word means to set free by the payment of a ransom. So if a loved one who had a family member who was a slave, they could pay a price they could set that, that family member free by the payment of that ransom. And that's the word that's used here. And it emphasizes the fact for us that Christ purchased us for freedom. Not only did he buy us, not only did he buy us so that we would not return, but he didn't buy us so that we could remain slaves. He bought us so that he could free us never to be slaves again. He says in John chapter 8, if the Son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Complete and utter freedom, never to return. See, in his cross work, Christ purchased for himself a people. Christians are his. And that purchase frees us from the power of sin, that slavery to sin where we found ourselves. By nature, it it bound us and it, it separated us from a right relationship with God the Father. And so in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. His blood on the cross was the purchase price that set us free, never to return. That's a glorious gospel message. That's not a get out of jail free card. That's not a pray the sinner's prayer so that I don't go to hell someday. That, that's, a, that's an anemic, sad version of the gospel. See, we're, we're a soundbite culture. We like everything boiled down into these little phrases that, so that we don't have to think too much. And we well-meaning people have boiled down the gospel to teaching a little child to ask Jesus into my heart. What does that even mean? There's no gospel in that. The gospel is simple, but it's so much more beautiful and deep. Little children know they've been bad. They know they've done wrong. They know what that is. 
And they can understand that Jesus Christ came to purchase them away from that sin. And that's what we need to understand. The second word is forgiveness. Forgiveness. Redemption makes forgiveness possible. It says we're, we're forgiveness, we have forgiveness of our trespasses. Forgiveness is a legal term, and it means to pardon or cancel a debt. You see, in our legal system, when a president or a governor pardons a criminal, he sets that prisoner free. He, the prisoner no longer has to pay the debt that he incurred. He can go about his life. He's no longer guilty in the eyes of the law. But it doesn't mean that they're not guilty. They still did what they did. It doesn't mean that what they did no longer matters. They're simply pardoned. It also means that the person's granted freedom from the penalty of the crime. When we pardon a criminal today, they no longer have to pay the penalty they once paid. But what the legal system does not do is it does nothing to, to, to appease the offended party. Whoever that criminal offended in their crime, if that criminal's pardoned, the offended party is not appeased. The debt is never repaid. They simply get off the hook. And there's a difference between man's legal system and God's. See, God is a holy and a just God. And every sin, no matter how small, offends his holiness. Every sin committed is ultimately committed against the God of the universe. And his wrath is kindled against that sin. He can't say, let's forget, forgive and forget. He can't say, don't worry about it. Because if he did, he'd cease to be God. He'd cease to be just. He'd cease to be holy. And when it comes right down to it, we don't want to serve a God who's not true to his own nature. What kind of God is that? Then you have the gods of the Greeks and Romans that they served in fear. That's why Christ's redeeming work is necessary. That's why Christ makes forgiveness possible. Wrath was kindled against sin, the wrath of God the Father. And in Christ's redeeming work, on the cross, Christ absorbed all that wrath on our behalf. See, the price that Jesus paid on the cross was not to Satan. I think sometimes that we might get some kind of a flavor of that idea that we kind of, he kind of had to pay the devil off for us kind of thing. And there's some sense that that's true in Scripture. Scripture does teach that we're, by our own sinful nature, we're, we're under the power of Satan. We're, we're kind of under his thumb where he abuses us, enslaves us. And so there's a sense that, rightly so, that Christ's work on the cross broke that power. But the ultimate price paid for our redemption was to God the Father. It was to God the Father. He's the offended party. And on the cross, a real penalty had to be paid. And the Father poured out his wrath upon his Son. And the sins that Jesus Christ bore on that cross were all of the sins of all of his people through all of the ages. 
everything. When Jesus Christ at the end of his cross work said it's finished. He meant it. It's done. There's no more sin of his people that's left unredeemed, unpaid. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10 said, this is love. Not that we've loved God, but he loved us. And he sent his son as a propitiation, or NIV says an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Now, we don't use words like propitiation anymore, but we don't have to be scared of them. They're great words, and they're in the Bible. All that it means is that propitiation means to turn aside. And it was used by the ancients when they went into their temples and they offered a sacrifice to their gods, and they hoped to appease the anger of the gods. Well, God is no petty ancient Roman or Greek God, but his wrath needed to be appeased. And Jesus Christ on the cross, as he hung there and said, why have you forsaken me, Father? It was in those moments when God poured out all of his wrath that we deserved on his son. And Jesus Christ absorbed it all on our behalf. And he propitiated. He turned aside the wrath of God. And so in redeeming his people, in making full payment for our sins, he makes forgiveness possible. That's now how God the Father can look at us and say, you're forgiven. He can look at us and say, you're righteous in my sight. He can look at us and say, I don't see the sins you've committed anymore. Not because he ignores them, because they're dealt with. Once and for all, they're dealt with. And that's the answer to Faye's first question. How can Jesus, who died so long ago, forgive me for all the horrible things I do now? Well, the Father can forgive. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He's faithful and just, just only because the price has already been paid. Well, there's a third word, the word grace. It's not the name of our church. It's not what Paul was thinking about, but it is a good word. See, we're not deserving of this good news. We don't have to get any ideas in our head that we're some kind of super special person that deserves God's favor. That's not taught in any Bible that I'm aware of. But that doesn't mean, that's not to drag us down into the pit of despair. That's part of the good news. Part of the good news is I didn't deserve God's favor. I didn't deserve God's redemptive work. But God the Father is gracious. This verse ends with, we have the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. And verse 8 goes on, which he lavished upon us. God is not a stingy God. And when he says, my son redeemed you, when he says, I can forgive you, it's not that he forgives just enough to get us by. It's not that, well, as long as you don't do too many more bad things, you'll be okay. There's none of this in Scripture. There's none of this in any gospel that I know rooted in Scripture. 
What Paul says here is that God the Father loved his people so much that he gave, a, in, he gave graciously according to his own riches, according to, in proportion to. What does that mean? God is the God of the universe. He's the creator of all things. Everything exists by the word of his power. There's nothing that God doesn't do, that doesn't own. There's nothing that he can't do. He lacks for nothing. And it's in proportion to all that God is that he lavishes grace and mercy upon God's people. That's something to rejoice over. What that does for his people, what that does for us, is it gives us the ability to wake up in the morning and look out towards the end of our day and say, whatever I face this day, whether it's broken relationships, whether it's difficulties at work, whether it's those bullying me in school, whoever doesn't value me, whoever tells me I have no value, whoever tells me I don't measure up, whoever seeks to beat me down, whatever I face, I can look beyond all that and say, I am a treasured possession of the King of Heaven. Because he bought me with lavish grace that he continues to lavish upon me. I have value in the eyes of my creator and my redeemer. The father gives his redeemed children in proportion to his great riches. Paul says where sin increased, grace super increased. It abounded all the more. That's the word there. So no matter how, you can't out-sin God's grace. Because his grace is sufficient. And the Father lavishes that grace on us. Go home, take some time to read 3 through 14 again. You really have to spend some time doing that. It's It's a checklist of all the lavishness that the Father gives to his people. He says, I chose you before the foundation of the world. I chose to adopt you as sons and daughters of the living God. I didn't choose to redeem you to keep you as slaves. I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to make you my children. I chose to give you all that Christ has. I chose to give you a beautiful inheritance. And by the way, I've given you the Holy Spirit as a seal and a guarantee That while you experience blessings here on earth, there's a time coming when Christ returns when I'm going to guarantee all of the blessings that I've promised. And that's all part of the gospel. It's so much more than a get-out-of-jail-free card. So much more. As we conclude and as we work our way into communion, towards communion, Communion is where where we celebrate our own redemption that we have in Christ. And I don't want to leave here without being painfully clear. There are two kinds of people in this room. The first group of people in this room is in need of Christ, is in need of redemption. is in need of hearing and understanding the good news for the first time. See, as we come to celebrate the communion table, which all of God's redeemed people celebrate, 
I'm going to ask you to let, ask, to let the elements pass by. Because the communion is a celebration for God's people. But I want you to take that time to consider that God is a God of grace and mercy. God is not an exclusionary God. He doesn't exclude some people and say, my offer of the gospel is not for you. He extends the free offer of the gospel to you. And in this life, you have a chance to repent. Jesus said, repent and believe that my redemption is enough for you. That's what he calls you to do. In this life, there's an opportunity to repent. But I wouldn't be true to the gospel if I didn't tell you there's a flip side. You see, that opportunity is in this life. For when Christ returns or you die, whichever comes first, there will be no second chance. Remember the wrath of God that must be, that must pour, be poured out on sin? If Christ hasn't redeemed you, the wrath will be poured out on you. There's a real heaven. And there's a real place called hell. And don't let culture tell you otherwise. Because it's a lie. But in God's lavish graciousness, while you're sitting here in these chairs, you can ask him for free and complete forgiveness. And he will lavish it upon you. If you don't understand and you're concerned or you don't know what this all means, I'm one person you can go to. You can go to Eric. You can go to the elders. Anybody sitting next to you that attends grace regularly, just ask them. But don't leave here without redemption being dealt with in your life. Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. Well, the rest of us, are identified as those being in Christ. That's the first two words of our verse. The idea of being in Christ is used over 160 times in the New Testament, and it's a direct equivalent for being saved, for being a Christian, being in Christ. And we don't have time to go through it, but what it means at its heart is Christ so envelops our being. We are so tied to him through his redemptive work. When we become Christians, we are so tied to him that God looks at us and says, I see my son. Everything you are is in Christ. Your salvation is in Christ. Your righteousness is in Christ. Your freedom is in Christ. It's all because of him and through him and you're part of him. And there's no separation. Everything that Christ will have, everything God's, that, that God the Father has promised him, is ours. And so I would ask you to come, and I would ask you to rejoice at the communion table. Because we celebrate the broken body and the, broke, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And what these elements represent is complete redemption. And what we celebrate is that we are no longer slaves we are free men and women in Christ. And that's something worth celebrating. I want to end with one verse from the book of Zephaniah. Zephaniah is an awesome book. One of my, this has become one of my dearest verses in all of Scripture. Because whenever I believe the lies that the enemy tells me, whenever I believe that I have no value in Christ, 
Whenever I believe that his sin, his accomplishment may not be quite enough. Whenever I believe that somehow I have no value in him. Verses like this come back. The prophet is looking forward at Christ's second return. And he's telling all of God's people, including us, what to look forward to. How valued are you with God the Father? says, the Lord your God is in your midst. He will dwell with us. A mighty one to save. Now, drink these other lines in. This is God the Father, the creator of the universe, the one who sits enthroned upon the cherubim, the one who is seated in the heavenly realms on his throne, and the cherubim and the seraphim have to cover their eyes and cover their feet because of his awesome glory. This is the one who created and sustains everything that exists. And this is what he thinks of you as his redeemed people. He says, when I return for you, I'm going to rejoice over you with gladness. I'm going to quiet you with my love. I'm going to exult over you with loud singing. Isn't that awesome? That's what God the Father will do for his redeemed people. That's how much he loves us. That's what we celebrate this morning. And that's the answer to Faye's second question. Why would he ever return for me? Why? Because Jesus Christ loves us and he will return for what he's purchased. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, my words are inadequate to describe the glories of the gospel. But your Holy Spirit is more than adequate to teach us and instruct us, to work in our hearts, Father. For those of us who are in Christ here, Lord, I pray that we would enter into this communion time with great joy and celebration at all of the things that you've done for us. For those of of us here who are in this room who, who, who don't yet know Christ as Lord and Savior, would you prick their hearts, Lord? Would you make them see that the gospel is free? It's accessible to them. It's available so that they too can enter into all of the joys that God the Father lavishes on his people. Thank you for the opportunity we've had, Lord, to spend time in your word together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.